Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Can we pray, please? We are thankful for this day. We are grateful for the gift of life. We are grateful for the gift of peace. We are grateful that we are able to gather in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love, hope, and empathy. I've experienced all these before the age of seven. I was born to a Muslim father and a Christian mother in a small town called Apache. My mother was a Christian and she was away in nursing school. And while in nursing school, she had two children. The firstborn, Juliet, and then the secondborn was me. And when I was born, my grandparents had no idea that my mother had children. And so after several weeks, was about one, I was about one month, word reached my grandparents, and they traveled on their bicycle for three hours to pick me and Juliet up. So when they picked us up, we traveled back to a small town called Muchwini. It's in Kitgum district, still in the northern part of Uganda. This is a place where I experienced extreme poverty. That means living on $1.25 a day. Our homestead was comprised of five huts. Right at the entrance of it was the kitchen, and then my grandmother's hut, my grandfather's hut, the male and female guest hut, was shaped in form of an ark. And right in the middle was the fireplace. The fireplace was a very instrumental part of our home, because that is where my grandfather taught from the word of God. Every evening, my friends from the neighboring homes would come and gather while my, my grandfather taught. I remember when I turned five years old, it was very exciting because it was then that I knew things were going to change for me. I was old enough to start school. But then I had to pass a very simple test and I'm very sure everybody here can pass it. Very simple. All you had to do was touch your opposite ear like that. And um, as I stood in front of my grandfather, trying to touch my opposite ear, I failed. And he said, my brain hadn't grown and I wasn't ready for school. But I get, this was Friday. I had, that meant I had Saturday and Sunday to work on it because Monday was school. And so I worked so hard on Saturday, my friends even laid hands on me so I could touch my ear for my grandfather to allow me to go to school that day, that Monday. So very early, Monday morning, we got up and I still tried to touch my ear, but nothing happened. And so my grandmother and I walked to work in the fields. And while we, work, we worked in the fields, it was a whole day. Then about 3.30, it got, it got really, really hot. So we had to start walking back to come home. So we walked and came back home. And then I sat waiting for my friends, because all my friends in the community went to school that Monday, other than me. So as I waited for my friends to come back and share the wonderful stories that they heard from school, the wonderful new things they had learned from school. And as I waited with my grandfather at the fireplace, none of the children showed up. None of the children showed up because it was the first day that the Lord's Resistance Army abducted children to train them to become child soldiers. And I was not one of them. And that was because God had a different plan for me. 
I remember a lot of things began changing within my home because now nobody was sending children to school and therefore the rebels began coming into the home to kill the parents and take the children. And so we had to derive a different means of survival. And I recall my grandparents, they would have so many people in the home every evening. My grandfather would sit by the fireplace. He would pray because that is all that was left to do. I remember this specific evening, we had wails and screams in the neighboring homes. We prepared for, for other people to come and seek refuge within our homestead. We didn't know what was going to happen. There were about 70 people in my grandmother's hut, and I was sitting by my grandmother's feet. She was by the door. She had opened the door just a little bit, and you could see the compound with my grandfather sitting by the fireplace. And five rebels approached the homestead, and they asked my grandfather where everyone was. And my grandfather indicated that he had no idea where everyone was. And I recall two of them walked into the hut where we were, and they got in and picked and picked to see if there was anybody in there. And they went back to my grandfather and told him, you are telling the truth, there is no one there. Now for me, situations like that really opened my eyes on what the Passover looked like and what the Israelites experienced. These stories that my grandfather was reading to me were not just stories anymore. I became part of that story. A lot of things changed too within the community now where the rebels would come into a home and they would shut the doors and lock the doors using a latch, set the homes on fire. That meant nowhere to hide. And therefore a lot of people died in the fire. My grandmother had to derive a different means to make sure all the grandchildren stayed alive. She would line up blankets in one corner in the evenings and give instructions to pick it up and go hide in the forest. I remember picking up my blanket every evening by myself. By that time I was six. I'd go find my little spot, cover my head, go to sleep, wake up in the morning, walk back home. Very traumatizing. Was afraid of the dark. But at that moment, the only thing that was on my mind was survival. I did not want to be any of those children that got captured and trained to become child soldiers. Because when they train those children, even the friends that you play with, they can't recognize who you are. They'll kill with no mercy because they have been brainwashed. I remember that went on for about six months and again things changed whereby now the rebels realized people were hiding in the forests and they began burning everything down and we would walk. We had to walk. We never spent more than two nights in one place. I remember being very thirsty, wanted to drink some water. And I also remember being very hungry. I wanted food because we had traveled for a long time. My feet were swollen, had one dress that I'd worn for days. And of course, my blanket with me. But there reached a point in time that I wasn't hungry anymore for all the physical needs. I was hungry spiritually. I was hungry for love. I was hungry for hope. I wanted someone to feel empathy for what was happening to me. I remember my grandfather sitting me down and telling me, you cannot, you cannot live like this. God has a different plan for you. Don't let what you've experienced destroy your destiny. And I recall to this very day, we were home in June. I took, I have a five-year-old son. We went to Uganda in June. And uh, the picture of the hat, that's him getting into the hat. 
that heart reminds me of poverty. It reminds me of what living on a dollar twenty-five a day means. It reminds me of trying to negotiate the best time of the day to eat. We used to eat at 2 p.m. In the morning, you drank water, if the water existed. Ate a lot of starchy food. No school. If you're sick, the only thing left was to pray. I had one dress, just like I told you. It was very hard. It was also during that time that the three boys from San Diego enlightened the world of what was happening in the area that I grew up in. Research was done in 2013, and they did a poll just to see in a period of three months what percentage of people watched, watched on TV the rate of poverty. Just anything in line with poverty, 60% of them watched. And some of us who tweet, or Facebook, or Instagram, 7%. We see poverty as Christians. We know that we can make a difference. We know that we can change the lives of children. But there's always that thing that holds us back. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it when I have enough. What does enough money look like? You can never have enough money. I remember after reaching the capital city, I met my precious mother, Lois. She met me at the bus stop. She looked frail. She looked like she was experiencing something that was much greater than her. But she did not say a lot. When we got home, it was a one-roomed home. And while in that home, my mother always gave instructions. You never touched her things without gloves. You always spoke to her when she spoke to you, which was very rare. You see, my mother was struggling because she had HIV AIDS. She knew that her life, her days on earth were numbered. But she told us that, I'm taking you to church. And she did take us to church, which was about 12 miles away. We walked that morning. And when we got there, I had to line up in a corner with the other kids. There were kids lining up, and I just went. She told me, line up behind them. And she went the opposite direction to a different room to complete some paperwork. And I recall timidly waiting behind that line. And as I got to the front, they gave me this rectangular board that had two letters on it and seven numbers, UG127-0188. And as I stood there, and they took a picture of me, I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no idea that these were the very same packets that are here of these children. My packet ended up in Sydney, Australia. A family, Maria and Hanshu, they picked up my packet, and they filled it out. And they wrote me my first letter. And from that very moment, a lot of things changed in my life. Because they told me they loved me. They loved me enough to spare $38 a month to change my life. 
I was able to go to school. I was able to get clothes. I was able to get the best medical care that I ever needed. And the most important thing was there was restoration of salvation in my life because the experiences that I went through distorted my knowledge of who God was in my life. But through my sponsors, God was able to restore that. I remember when I reached high school, yeah, right before I reached high school, I had stayed with my mother for about three three years now, and uh, my mother would send you, if she wanted her own private time, she would send us to the market, and the market is a little bit far off. Then if we went like around 12, we wouldn't be back until four. And so, so she sent me and my younger sister, Charity. We were in the market trying to get some fruits and vegetables. And on our way back, my older sister ran towards us and said, mom is gone. I had to come into her room and check for myself. That was the very first time that I entered her room. I tried to wake her up. She couldn't wake up. You can only imagine how upset I was. I began to ask God all these questions. What had I done at 11 years old to deserve such pain? Please take this pain away from me. Please let me know what I have done so I can correct it. God had my prayer. And he was able to respond through my compassion sponsors. They wrote me the most profound letters that I will never forget. They have loved me like I'm their own child. And they could only do this through Christ. I remember after mom passed away, we had to move in and stay with our cousins. They were five, we were three. The oldest was 16. It was very hard. It was very hard. But because I was in the compassion program, there were counselors, there were pastors coming at home just to check on us to make sure everything was okay. And I remember going to high school. I was a sophomore. And like at this time, I'm totally fine attending classes. By around five, I'm very sick and I have a temperature of 105. So when it clocks 4.30, I start walking to the infirmary so that the nurse could help my temperature to go down. That happened for about three months. And then a compassion worker, Uncle Steven, he came and got me from school and took me to a hospital. They performed different tests, including an x-ray, chest x-ray, and they found out that I had pulmonary tuberculosis. And there's a 95% chance of dying from tuberculosis in Uganda only because the medication costs a lot. And if you can afford the medication, the nutrition that goes with the medication so that it can work effectively is very expensive. And I remember taking the medication and then after about six months, I was feeling a lot better. And so I stopped. I was supposed to take the medication for a whole year. I felt better and I kind of ignored it. But then the seventh month hit me so bad I lost a lot of weight. I was about 95 pounds. I knew that I was going to die. I was taken into the hospital. And in that hospital, it was very, very heartbreaking because you have about 20 other children with, within the same hospital with you. You see them every day. And they began disappearing one by one, just one by one. 
They died because they could not afford the medication. And I was lucky enough because I was in the compassion program. I was able to get the best medical care that I needed. I was able to get the best nutrition. I also remember that after that incident, I had to decide whether I wanted to continue playing the sport of volleyball. So I, I started playing volleyball again. And a recruit from Florida actually came to our school and did several recordings. And I ended up being one of those that was recruited to play volleyball at South Carolina State. And I finished South Carolina State and then I went to UGA for my master's program. And I finished that in 2007. If it wasn't for that child packet, if it wasn't for mom and dad, Maria and Hansru, picking up my packet, I would not be here. You would not hear my story. It's okay to say I love you, but it's most important to take a further step and transform that love and hope and empathy into action. I sponsored two children. Raymer is in the Dominican Republic and Jeremiah is in Uganda. It's a great reminder of what taking action means. And I know without a doubt that each and everyone here is able to take action. Sometimes you feel like you cannot do it alone. Talk to a friend, talk to a teammate, talk to your family. We can end poverty. Imagine I was there living on a dollar 25 a day and see where I am. Only because someone took the act. They took the action and they sponsored me. And that did not stop there because it has to keep on going. We have to keep on going. We can't stop there. We need to end poverty because poverty really cripples. In Jeremiah 41, verse 10 goes, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's promises are true. When you start sponsoring, it's a leap of faith that you take. It's an action that you take. And with God on your side, trust me, you will have that $38 a, a month. Every month you will have that. But the most important thing is you're telling another child about the love of Christ. You're giving that child hope. You're giving that child love. And before you know it, poverty will be history. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.